Genesis 2, verse 18. Uh, let's read it through to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God has formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for the man, Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs, one of his ribs, and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Lord, I pray you guide us this evening uh, into an understanding of your desires for the relation between genders. Um, God, soften our heart and put down any walls that might be guarding our proud perspective on life. And may we be open to what you would have to say and willing to um, have our heart and mind shaped by what you desire. So we surrender to your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Last week, we bravely treaded upon the topic of marriage, a single man talking to a bunch of single men and women about things that we know nothing about. It was fun. Um, however, I think it was clear through the study that God's Word is clear whether you have experience or not. It's there to help you have understanding so the experience becomes easier when you get there. So we looked at marriage. Um, online, of course, on iTunes, you can get either the notes or the audio version if you missed that and want to check that out. This week, we look at the text again with the perspective of dating. Because... Um, we look at marriage first because there's no point in looking at dating until we know what dating leads up to. Dating leads up to marriage. And so the purpose of dating is marriage and we should not treat dating as anything else but preparation for marriage. Um, it's prevalent today that dating is viewed as a dance if you will. It's a game. It's, it's something you hop in, find a, a an available partner, and uh, you do your moves, and as long as the music's good and the rhythm's fine, you're dancing. But as soon as you don't like the song or the rhythm starts getting messed up, you just bail on out and jump in somewhere else. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of how dating is viewed. It's a game. It's just this dance. It's in and out. Someone else. New partner. Just something to do. And I don't think that that is what God would want his people, Christians, to use dating as. So, the reason um, we need to look at this topic in detail tonight is because, as C.S. Lewis described in his Screwtape Letters, um, that's a book where a demon named Screwtape is writing to his protege, or his um, apprentice, Wormwood, and he's giving him advice on how to trip up his patient. His patient is a human being who becomes a Christian, and Screwtape is mad that he became Christian. He's like, you need to trip this guy up. Make him stumble. Make him turn his back against God. And so Screwtape starts giving Wormwood advice. And in the book, he tells Wormwood that, um, look, we need to do this, okay? If we can't use his sexuality to make him unchaste, then we must try to use his sexuality for the promotion of a desirable marriage. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to use your passions for the opposite sex, and if he can't make you have sex before marriage, which is a battle right there in and of itself, 
he's going to use that desire to maybe say, okay, I'm going to wait till marriage, but he's going to say, get married as soon as possible. Here's a nice, fine woman. And, and he's going to try to work your emotions and passions for the opposite gender to create what is in Satan's view a desirable marriage, meaning a marriage that is going to completely destroy your joy and happiness in the Lord. A, a girl who's promiscuous, a girl who can't, your faith. A girl is going to make your walk with God as difficult as possible. And so we need to be guarded against this desirable marriage that Satan wants to bring to us. But on the other side, God has desirable marriages too. He has a plan to bring into a marriage that brings him glory. So, dating is a battlefield that is not wrong in and of itself, but it becomes a battlefield in which both Satan and God wage war to manipulate your romantic desires one way or the other. So in this battlefield of romance and dating, is it going to be Satan who claims you, or is it going to be God who claims you? Who are you going to allow to use these desires for romance? Now, Satan... We're going to first look at um, two areas here. First, how Satan uses dating to find a desirable marriage for him. And then how God uses dating, on the second side, to form a relationship. Alright, so Satan wants to use your desires, to use your dating, to find romance in your life. Whereas God wants to use your desires and dating to form a relationship. So Satan's going for the romance. Jesus is going for the relationship. Both are trying to use this realm of the attraction to the opposite gender and dating. And so that's where we're going to go. And then finally, once we establish the two tactics of both sides using this battlefield, we'll look at, I think, one of the most difficult parts of stressful, overly thought-like parts of your life, and that is, when I think there's a person for me, what do I do? How do I go about that? How do I know? So, um, here we go. Let's, let's tread faithfully and uh, pray that God um, speaks through this, because I'm not married yet, but I think that through my dating history, which isn't large, but it's enough to... Um, give some wisdom that I've learned through the years. I mean, I may not be married, but I am 26. I've had 26 years of battling the opposite gender. <laughs> if kindergarten counts. That was actually my first crush. So, her name was Michelle. Coincidentally, I offered to my parents to name their first daughter Michelle. It was the first name on my mind. <laughs> so, anyways, now you know all about me. So, um... So you guys don't freak out. I am using my Kindle. This is just my notes. Um, I have so much information for us tonight. Usually I just condense it to post it in my Bible, but I just want to make sure we got the full thing. So some of you stop the wondering, like, what the... I know how... I, just, I love... When things are different, I have to explain it. Because I know... I, I, if I were you, I'd be thinking, half the time, what is that black thing? It's a Kindle. What is he looking at on it? My notes. <laughs> um, why is this Bible not open? Well, it's here, too. So just... Get that out of your mind, okay? That was a footnote. Let's enter in now. Here's how Satan uses dating to find what he calls a desirable marriage. He wants to use this dating to bring a bad marriage into your life. Now, where is dating at today? I stumbled upon an interesting article, and if you guys are interested, I will email it to you, um, or flash drive it, whatever you guys want. It's by Rob Whitley. It's an article called A Reconsideration of Romantic Love. And he describes three types of marriage in history. Now, these three types of marriage have always existed. Um, they have always coexisted as well. But usually one of them is the favored type of marriage in a generation. And you'll see this as I explain it. The first is the arranged marriage. Now, the arranged marriage is a lot like what you see in Bible times. Um, for example, Mary and Joseph were an arranged marriage. The parents, while the children are still very young, decide, make a contract, okay, my son's going to marry your daughter. 
I like that idea. And so they agree the contract. Before these kids even have any say in it, they are, if you will, predestined to marry one another. It's been chosen for them. And so when they become of age, which is anywhere from 13 to 16, very young in these days, which is why it was wise the parents chose who you married, um, they got married very young, and that was how it worked. And <coughs> in that type of setting, the romantic aspect of the relationship came as a result of the marriage. You got married first, and then you fell in love with the person. An interesting backward way of how we think of it. Um, it's not all that bad of an idea. In fact, it's been shown that arranged marriages have a greater percentage of lasting than our common free will choice marriages. Very interesting that that's how the Bible times did it. The second type of marriage is the companionship marriage. And that is very popular amongst um, really devoted Christians who are striving for purity and waiting on the Lord for their spouse, and basically it's just what it sounds like. It's based upon companionship, upon friendship. You develop an intimate friendship with a person, and you have commonalities, you're, you're basically best friends, and then you move into the stage of becoming romantic and getting married. And then the third stage, and this is the one that is pervasive in this generation, and the one I'm sure most of the girls are throbbing for, and the guys secretly are too, but they're a little more stronger than that, admit it, and that's the romantic marriage. I mean, just the name says it all. Oh, romance. The romantic marriage. This is portrayed in movies, literature, uh, every, every sort of media. That's what's being thrust at us is romantic marriage. Now, whereas arranged marriage, romance came as a result of the marriage. In romantic marriage, the romance is a reason for the marriage. The romance drives you through the marriage. And in such a setting, rather than falling in love with the person you marry, in a romantic marriage, you marry the person you fall in love with. So it's a complete reversal of the arranged marriage. And this is, again, I think the... Really, you've been, grown, you've been raised on this mentality of this is how you get married. You fall in love with someone so passionate, the feelings are flamed and so romantic and... Then you just happen to get married to seal the deal. <laughs> now, there is nothing wrong in and of itself with this form of marriage. However, I'm going to contend that this is the one Satan uses to develop his desirable marriages. Now, there's nothing wrong with romance, but he is trying to push forward the idea that you have to have the most high experience of romance possible or you're not really in love. What are the dangers to this type of marriage? First, well again, let's, let's make sure we're clear on what romantic is. Romance is not necessarily just sitting at a table with candlelights under the stars and fireflies buzzing around in a garden, having a nice dinner with a cello playing in the corner. I mean, that's great and all, but that's not quite just what I mean by romance. Now, the feelings that are invoked within you as you put that scene in your head, those feelings are romantic feelings. And this is what we're going towards. It's the feeling, the passionate attraction, where you look at the partner, we'll call him that for now, because girlfriend, guys, I, you know, I don't want to just talk to the guys. The partner becomes literally everything in your emotional experience. You basically find your identity and your security and intimacy in this person. You're so wrapped up around them. I, in my experience in high school, every thought about a girl that wasn't negative was a, a romantic thought. It was just, she was everything to me. And I remember my first girlfriend in junior high, but just the thought, what if she died? I would be devastated. I don't even know why I'd live anymore. I mean, it's so pathetic. But this is romance, okay? This is, I believe Satan wants to use this in a negative sense if we're not careful. So, the three dangers of romantic marriages. First, it seeks salvation in the spouse or the partner. It seeks salvation in them. And this is because we live today in a very uncertain world. 
extremely uncertain. We don't know what nation's going to bomb the other. We don't know if a nuclear bomb's going to kill us soon. We don't know what gas prices will be. We don't know if our economy's ever going to recover. Very uncertain times. So what do we do? We run from the uncertainty to find certainty in a person. See, this person becomes our salvation. They become, if you will, a barrier between the chaos of life and safety. Finding shelter, refuge, salvation in this person. Because the world's uncertain. The world's also very stressful. Um, I don't know what kind of jobs you guys have, but um, when you get older, well, any job really, but some of the bigger jobs, the people there are not necessarily looking to give you a good day. There is a very cutthroat mentality. It's all about promoting number one so that you can get the promotion, the better job, the favor of the boss. There was a time when what you did as a living was kind of your identity and there was this community, this fellowship, but today it's almost like fractured and people biting each other and stabbing each other trying to get the most money. It's a very stressful environment out there and so we find stress relief in a person. Um, the worry. Worry is another chaos in our world. Today, we have more freedom than ever before. I mean, consider the, the kind of questions you guys have on your minds right now and the questions that people are asking you and you feel obligated to give an answer to these questions and really, the, some of these questions, to give an answer to them means that you're the omniscient Sovereign God giving me the answer. Questions like, am I going to go to college or not? If I'm going to go to college, which college am I going to go to? Where am I going to go to college? What am I going to study? What kind of friends am I going to hang out with? Am I going to date? Who am I going to date? Am I going to get married? Who am I going to get married to? When am I going to get married? Are we going to have kids? How many kids? When are we going to have kids? There's this whole, in your career path, everything is portrayed to you as an American as, it's your choice. Do what you want. And people are always asking, what are you going to do? 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 And when you don't have the answers, and it, it's okay not to, but, but when we don't have the answers, we feel obligated, like we're failures for not having the answers. And this stress and this worry is piled on about our present and about our future because we don't have God-like answers to these questions. <laughs> and so we find our only security and certainty and stability in a person, and, and that's where the romance is. They're my salvation. They're everything to me because this world's so chaotic. So that's how Satan wants to use romances. That you find salvation in that person. Um, secondly, <laughs> the second danger of romantic relationships is uh, the demands are unrealistic expectations. Now, you're using this partner as your salvation. They're pretty much your savior. They are your shelter from the chaos of the world. You're putting expectations on a person that were never designed to be provided from a person. Jesus is to be the only shelter, salvation, savior, refuge from the chaos of this world. That is where man is supposed to go to find security, to find shelter. But when we put God-like, again, expectations on our partner... You put these expectations that are so insurmountably high that when they fail, and they inevitably will, they will not live up to your expectations, the relationship is going to fracture and break. And naturally, this, all this leads to the third danger of romantic love, and that is that um, it's basically the committing of idolatry. Look, you're elevating a person to the status of your Savior. You're replacing what you should be getting in Jesus with the person. And that is idolatry. To run to anything other than Jesus Christ. And so you make romance your God, you make your person, your savior, your idol, and obviously we can see how Satan would love to just flood and flame your passions with romance so that when you find the person, they're everything to me. He wants that. He wants to stumble. That's the danger of romantic love. Now, the lie of romantic love is portrayed in the media. Media, as I said before, is bombarding you and feeding your fantasy with romance. Uh, so the Twilight series, <laughs> I didn't read it, but I saw the movie and that's all I needed to know to know why it's so popular. Oh my gosh, is there anything more 
I, it was romance is here, and they took it to another level when you really think about it, because it's not just, oh, you're everything to me, but it's, I need your blood. Your very live stream is everything to me. I need to suck the life out of it. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> That's romantic, I guess. But it's like this whole other level. Uh, movies, I, I'm not much of a chick flick guy. I know why. Uh, but I did see recently, um, uh, Dear John, and, I, what, girls, can I just side note here? Why do you torment yourselves? Why do you torment yourselves with such traumatic movies? Holy, I would be scared to death to go into any relationship after watching a movie like that. But anyways, back to, like, all this stuff. It's thrust in these movies, um, it's, yeah, Jane Austen, it's everywhere, Pride and Prejudice, I mean. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, <laughs> C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity pointed out that when media thrusts this romance in our faces, what it's doing is, it's giving you two lies. It's telling you two things about romance that are not true. And they are, first, that romance lasts forever. Now, last week I talked about how in marriage, there's a stage where you're going to have to learn that romance is not the basis of your marriage anymore. Romance does not last forever. But, the media portrays romance as something that is an ultimate end in a relationship. It, it, it will last forever. You live happily ever after. And, and, and the implication burrowed deep down in our consciences as we see this is that it does last. I want my, mine to last forever like that. And, and when our romance does not last forever anymore, when the feelings fizzle down just a little bit, we start to think, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. I found the wrong person. Because romance is supposed to last forever. So I made a mistake. I'm going to find a new person. <laughs> that's a lie. And that's what media is subtly pushing to us. The second lie, according to C.S. Lewis, is that romance is irresistible. That it's some sort of a feeling that just, it just happens, like as if you get a cold, it's just suddenly there. And because it's just suddenly there and there's no explanation for it, you should follow it. But romance is irresistible. Uh, I mean, it is resistible. You can fight against it. See, these feelings for someone is something that is fostered and nurtured within yourself. Um, and so, the reason we see so many breakups and divorces is because of feeling, well, romance is irresistible. So when you start to wane in your romance for one partner and suddenly there's someone really attracting your eye over here, because you believe it's irresistible, you start to think, I can't help it. So we're going to get a divorce so I can go follow what is natural. This is what's leading. I am the victim of my romantic feelings, so I'm going to become a victim of them. Those are the lies of romantic love. Guys, Look, the media is feeding us with these romantic fantasies. I, I'm not going to be dogmatic, white and black here, but I just have to question myself and all of us. Why do we feed ourselves with this junk? Why don't we look more realistically, and if we have to tolerate, or chick flick or something, that's the word, I just have to call out a realistic mind cap and realize these people are purely driven by the flesh. Yes, I will have this romance at one point, but I don't need it in the way that they are putting it at the forefront of the relationship. You see, true romance should be a result of marriage, not a reason for it driving us to it. Our generation feels like romantic relationships are the prime. Companion relationships... Uh, that's sort of second rate. You're just you're settling for something less. You're just not as good. And arranged relationships? Oh, that's so archaic. That's mean. That's not American-like. That's the mentality in our generation. We need to guard against that and realize, look, Satan wants us to think that romance is the only legitimate reason for marriage and not things like as... Um, Screw tape tells Wormwood, he tells them, don't let them think that marriage is um, an intention of loyalty to a partnership for mutual help or for the preservation of chastity or for the transmission of life. Don't let them think about those important things. Let them think that the only legitimate reason for marriage is romance. 
and all those feelings, and that should be the thrust that brings two people together. I believe that true romance should be more of a result of our marriage. And this is what God wants. And moving into our second section, um, that God wants to form a relationship in our dating. Not a romance. A romance will come, but first a relationship, and on the foundation of that relationship, build a romance. I believe that's what the bride in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7, was saying to the other virgins in Israel. This is what she meant when she said, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you stir not up or awaken love until it pleases. You know, often we translate that to say, don't have sex until marriage. That's very practical, it's very good and wise. I think at the same time, love is stirred up in romantic feelings. And this bride on the other side of the marriage would say, I'm adjuring you, don't stir up romance before it's time. So, God's way, I'm proposing, is that God uses dating not to find a desirable relationship, but to form a desirable relationship. There's a difference. He wants to form it in the dating relationship. He wants to start to form your romance, not to find a romance in it. We'll get into this. Dating versus relating. Dating is kind of um, a word that, especially in our culture, it's implying this romantic relationship stuff. So, I want to, just in a cute way, <laughs> re-term dating to be relating. So that we're not so focused on the, we have our first kiss out in front of the door, and you know, not so focused on that part of dating, but on the relational aspect. So, we'll call it, God's way, <laughs> we'll call it relating. Now, what's the difference? Well, in dating, it's a lot like, as I said before, it's a dance. Just jump in, jump out, the music's going, the rhythm's fine, I like this song, it's a great dance, a great partner. I don't like this song, jump out. It's just all this up and down, and this feeling, and this is a movement, and this sway, and there's not even really this, this relationship or this bonding. It, it starts with the glance, and then the dance. I see them, let's, let's experiment a little, and uh, okay, it's old now, tired of this song. Jumping out, tired of this partner, whatever. <laughs> On the other side, <coughs> relating starts with friendship, and then moves into courtship. If you don't know, courtship is basically a relationship with the intent of getting married. Starts with friendship and moves into courtship. It's not based on the feelings, but it's based upon mutual people relating with one another, having a relationship of friendship. Um, the illustration is, comparing dating versus relating, is in dating, two acorns fall from a tree in approximately the same spot. They hit the ground, they start their relationship together, they start to grow up, they get into the soil, they start getting bigger, and eventually the roots entangle, the trunks entangle, and either one dies or both wither. And they don't last after a certain point. But in relational dating, relating, the two acorns fall from the same tree at, equal, at a good amount of a distance, so they still know each other. They're still with each other. But they begin to grow into healthy trees. And the healthier and bigger they grow, the closer they get together until eventually the branches spread out and the branches can entangle and embrace one another. I mean, you see how more logical it is to, to move in slowly that way so you don't kill one each other and, and the relationship dies? It has to start pretty separate and grow into each other. It has to develop a friendship into a courtship, not just instantaneous dating and romance and bam, Eventually, something's going to hit. Some root's going to be choked, and it's going to wither and die somewhere. Maybe not in your dating stage, but certainly, perhaps, down later in your marriage. How much better to relate and to grow into one another. So, this is where I want to get into the passage we read. How Adam found his primate amongst primates monkeys and animals. <laughs> How Adam found his prime mate, the ideal one, amongst a bunch of primates. It wasn't easy for Adam. As <laughs> we see right off the bat, it says there in verse 18 that God saw 
that Adam needed a mate. So what does God do? Verse 19 says, instantly, God sent all the animals to Adam. <laughs> I, need, I need a girl, God. <laughs> okay. He prayed the animals by him. Now, Adam could have said, wow, that's pretty sparse. I need someone now, so I'll pick giraffe. <laughs> well, that was an interesting first kiss. I don't know how they reached. Adam climbed the tree and how it happened, I guess. Or Adam said, that didn't work out well. Uh, orangutan, gorilla. Well, she lifted her arms to hug him and there's a lot of hair. And he said, whew, it's not going to work either. And then he's, okay, um, elephant. Oh, it's a wide load. That's not going to work either. She sat on me, actually. I don't... Good thing Adam was not quite like that. But guys, I, that's, I, that's within you. Your passion is like, oh, somebody now. Find somebody. But until God brings her, you're just looking at a bunch of primates. A bunch of animals. A bunch of hyenas. A bunch of peacocks. Might be attractive, but they're just birds. So, three ways that Adam found Eve. Number one, it's in verse 18. Adam trusted God's timing. He trusted God's timing. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. John Phillips, a commentator in Genesis, said this, Adam's wife was in the mind of God long before she was in the arms of Adam. God knows what you need and who you need. So trust his timing. It's God saw he needed a woman. He knew. He trusts his timing. Matthew 10, 30. I mean, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Matthew 10, 30 says, Even the hairs of your head are numbered. He knows you better than you know yourself. So, we should trust God's timing. Um, in the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, a very popular read at one time, and actually I read through it just to prepare for this message or for the whole book I know about a long time ago when I was in high school I don't need this I get kissed dating goodbye it's actually a really good read it's not anti-girls and guys thing like that at all it's actually practical advice with how to find your spouse so if you've ever put it aside I'm not going to read that I would actually recommend reading it but anyways footnote closed uh, Joshua Harris and I kissed dating goodbye said that the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing so even if it's something God wants you to have and it's outside of the timing, don't go there. It's the wrong thing. Because by doing that, you demonstrate a lack of trust in His timing. Psalm 84.11 says that the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows glory and grace. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. In other words, God wants to give you all good things. And if you don't have it, it's because it's not His timing or it's not good for you. So trust His timing as Adam did. Number two, Adam worked while he waited. He worked while he waited. It says in verse 19, Now, out of the ground the Lord God has formed every beast of the field and every bird. Um, and he, basically I'm just summarizing, God brought them to the man to see what he would call them and the man gave them names. Adam was really fulfilling the role God gave him to do in the garden. Remember in Genesis 1.28, God said, Look, you're to have dominion over creation means control. When Adam named the animals, that was, in this ancient time, a way of exercising authority. To name someone was to show that you had power over them, as a parent names a child, as God renamed Jacob to Israel. So Adam is naming the animals. He's working what God told him to do. He's exercising the authority God gave him to do. So, while you wait, work at becoming the perfect mate. Not looking for the perfect mate, Becoming the perfect mate. Get to work while you wait. Four observations about the work that Adam did. Number one, discover God's will for your life while you wait. Discover God's will for your life. That's what I'm saying. Adam knew God's will for his life. Dominion. So he exercised that dominion. Number two, don't hunt for hotties. <laughs> I use the alliteration, hunt and hotties. But it sounds like an animal. Like, like Winnie the Pooh, you guys have seen like the hunting for the heffalump. <laughs> it's like, what's a hottie? It sounds like something to hunt for. <laughs> Don't hunt for hotties. 
two disastrous results can happen if you hunt for hobbies. The first is the wandering eye. Okay, the habits you develop while you're single will carry into your marriage. And if you're in the habit of hunting for hotties, you're going to have a wandering eye even when you're married. The habit of always checking people out, always looking who's hot in this room and who's not. The wandering eye and also you're going to suffer from the wondering why. If you're the one that hunted for your wife or your husband and you got them, then while you're married, you're always going to suffer wondering why you married them. Are they the right one? I'm not sure. Because you don't have the security that God brought them to you. You have the insecurity that I found them. What if I made a mistake? You'll always be wondering why. Number, um, oh, those were the two. So, the, no, no, number, well, the third way Adam found Eve was he slept in the slumber of singleness. I like this. It took me a while to get to this slumber of singleness, but when you hit it, it's, we need to hit it. What is the slumber singleness? Well, God caused Adam to fall into deep sleep, and while he was asleep, took the rib and built, literally in the Greek, or the Hebrew, not just made, but built Eve. And there she was when he opened his eyes. The slumber of singleness is this. Um, first, observe that God put Adam to sleep. The sleep is satisfaction in his present situation. I'm single, I don't have anyone, but I can still sleep. I can rest my head, I can stop stressing, looking, scourging the jungles for primates. I can just sleep and rest. And guys, we do this in Jesus Christ. We rest in Him. You must be completely satisfied in Jesus before you think you can ever be satisfied in a person. So learn the slumber of sleep. And it's God who put Adam to sleep. I would say, oh, I'm going to go to sleep now. I'm just going to, I'm overlooking. God put him to sleep. You find the slumber of singleness in God. You find that contentment in Him. And so during this time, you seek to be all you can be in Jesus Christ, have all your identity and security in Him, so much so that I love this quote. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, um, his daughter, Talitha Ruth, said this, great quote for all you women, guys too, a girl should be so lost in God that a man has to seek him to find her. That's the slumber of singleness. You should be so lost in God that that's the only way to find your mate is right there in God. God, um, the slumber of singleness, observe also that God builds us to fit for our mate. While Adam slept, it says that he made Eve, and the Hebrew is literally built. So as you spend time with Jesus in your slumber singleness, God is building you and building her to fit. Verses 18 and 20 both say, a helper fit for him. Not just someone compatible, but someone fit. Like puzzle pieces. Perfect. Not just forcing it, like when you've got a few pieces left. It doesn't fit. <laughs> He puzzles sometimes. <laughs> Notice also in the slumber singleness that God brings our spouse to us. Adam didn't go to Eve. God brought Eve to Adam. Adam was asleep and she, she brought her to him. Observe also that God opens our eyes. <laughs> Adam's asleep. God opened his eyes and woke him up and there was Eve. Now, this is so true, okay? When I finally hit the slumber singles, when I gave up saying, I'm going to, you know, you know how it is when you're just wanting someone, you're like, everyone is, has potential. Everybody has potential when you're at that stage. And I finally got to the point, like, nobody has potential. Nobody. I'm fine being single. I might be a bachelor to the rapture, but whatever. I'm fine how I am. I'm not going to hunt anymore. Well, in the meantime, God brought Brittany to Voyage Church, and we were working the youth group together. A whole year goes by. Not a thought about being with her. And literally, almost instantaneously, in my slumber singles, God opened my eyes. He woke me up. And it was like, BAM! I think I like this girl. I didn't even know where it came from. Suddenly these feelings for her. And we've already, after a year, had somewhat of a friendship going. And then suddenly, it's like, what? I think there's potential here. God literally opens your eyes. And I think that's the way it should be. So all of a sudden, someone that was in your midst was like, wow. I can't tell you how many stories um, in our college group down the hill, how many couples got together that way. They were friends, and all of a sudden, it's like, our eyes are open. What in the world? We like each other. It's just, God, like, literally 
like in salvation, opening the eyes of your heart, literally opens their eyes and says, there you are, didn't you see it the whole time? <laughs> oh, I see it now. So slumber or sleep, finally, um, God makes our spouse obvious in the slumber or sleep. He opens the eyes and look, there she is. I mean, he had to be there for some time. If the minute Adam's eyes were open, there she was. She was there all the time. He just finally saw it. And when he saw it, verse 23, it was obvious. Adam exclaims, this is at last. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's, it, there was no hint of doubt in Adam's voice. This is it, at last. It wasn't, well, let's give it a try. Date number one, we'll assess it after. It was obvious to Adam. So those are the three principles for Adam's finding Eve in Genesis. And we're going to close with how do we move, okay, we established friendship's important, and then move to courtship. But how do we move from friendship to courtship? That's a scary leap. Very scary. Um, it was very scary for me and Brittany when we were no longer friends and moved into more of the courtship thing. We're together because we think that we're going to marry each other. It was, it's a scary leap. How, where, how do we get there? Gonna, I think they're done, so I'm going to try to um, do these rather quickly. Verse 24 is, of course, one of the last verses in this passage that talks about he saw her and the two became one flesh, this marriage. And we're, we're wondering, how do we get from verse 23, that's her, to verse 24, we're one flesh? How do we make that jump? Well, two steps. The first is to develop a friendship, then enter into courtship. Nothing new. We've been talking about this. Develop friendship, enter into courtship. But I want to give us a couple steps in each of those steps, okay? So first, the develop friendship for practical steps. Um, you want to always begin as casual, informal friends. Of course, this should be done with all people. All right? Don't treat anyone more special than the other. They're ugly. I'm not going to be their friend. She's hot. I'm going to be her friend. Look, we should be casual friends with everybody. And it's no different with the girls. We be casual friends with them all. Just start at this level. But there comes a point when you decide in your casual friendship, I think I want to be a little bit better friends just to get to know them better. It's the investigation stage. <laughs> now, when you come to this, we're more serious friends. We're not just casual friends. We're now concentrated friends. Not just informal friends or focused friends. Do not, first step, do not betray your feelings or your emotions at all. Don't, don't even give a hint. I'm kind of interested in you. Don't do that. You're going to ruin everything. Alright? Don't, don't start the romance and the playing with her emotions or, uh, God, what girls do that. Uh, flashing some hair. <laughs> don't start doing that stuff to arouse the romance yet. Don't betray your feelings. Stay away from intimacy. Always be inclusive. Friends with you guys. Okay? That's what friendship is. You're always with people, not exclusive. As C.S. Lewis mentioned, um, you know that you're friends because you are side by side. Whereas intimacy is face to face. Be side by side, not face to face. Let, let other people be around. Okay, so don't even reveal your feelings. Number two, during the stage, the developing the friendship, investigate their spiritual life. Now, this isn't too creepy, okay? This is just what everybody should be doing if you're going to think about being someone forever. Investigate their spiritual life. Guys, look for a Proverbs 31 woman. I call them a P31. <laughs> Girls, um, I've never looked for a guy. So I don't know. I don't know how to qualify that for you. I'm sure maybe there's something in the Bible for you. <laughs> but here's some um, <laughs> things to observe first. Things to investigate. How do they walk with God? Very important. Do they know the scriptures well? Are they afraid to pray in groups? How do they walk with God? Observe their fruit. You don't want to get with the sheep in wolf's clothing, or a wolf in sheep's clothing. Second thing to observe, how do they relate with others? Especially look at how they relate with their family. It's been said that the way someone treats their family is the way they will treat you in the future. That's very true. Because once the romance kind of settles down, you're just going to be like mom, dad, brother, sister, just someone you live with. <laughs> a little different, but, but you start to treat each other that way. Sharing everything, sharing the room, you know all their weaknesses, you know all their flaws. Watch how they treat their family. It might be the way they treat you later. Um, also observe who their friends are. Big. A.W. Tozer said, 
There is a law of moral attraction that draws every man to the society most like himself. Friends are generally a mirror of who you are. Third investigation. How do they manage the resources? Things like money, things like time. Are they wasteful? Are they materialistic? Do they just watch TV? What do they listen to? Watch those things. Fourth investigation. How do they talk? Huge. Don't play this off. Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what you say is like the explosion of a stick of dynamite that was put in your heart. Everything that's in there comes out with what you say. Your passions compose the words. What did I say? Your compassion? Your passions compose the words that come out of your mouth. Watch what people say. You know a lot about them. <laughs> Investigation number five. How is their attitude towards things like work, stress, authority, difficulties, humility? Sort of how they handle those things. And then, when she's investigated, get feedback. Number three, third step, get feedback from family and members. If they don't like, your friends don't like her, him. That's a red light, especially your parents. When um, I heard that Brittany uh, was liked by both my mom and my sister, I took note. <laughs> she was the first girl that I liked that both my mom and sister liked. And that spoke volumes to me. I said, there's something here. They like her. This is a miracle. Um, <laughs> and then the fourth step to the friendship. Wait and pray. Okay, you've investigated, you've asked people, you think that this is going in the right direction, wait and pray. Don't rush. Slow down. And remember, you still haven't betrayed your emotions. Slow down. You've got time. I want, this is actually from my own journal, a reflection in this very same step, being with Brittany. I wrote, time is my surgeon's knife. The same instrument that inflicts my pain will also induce my remedy. Time is painful waiting, but time will answer your questions that are fogged in your emotions. Time will sort those things out. So just pray, seek God, read the Word, and finally, the peace of God at some point will enter your heart. So you develop the friendship, then you enter the courtship. How do you enter the courtship? Well, once you sense the green light from God, it's time to move purposefully. This is where, guys, you take the leadership. First, make your intentions and feelings crystal clear. Don't mess with your time. Um, I was so, taking it so slow, there came a point when Brittany actually had asked me, okay, look, I'm so attracted to you that if you're not intending to bring this somewhere, I have to just quit our entire friendship. She said that. And I, okay, I guess this is overdue, it's time to tell you. Um, let's move forward. There's something here. <laughs> now, girls, I know you guys know, you want the guy to lead. I, I was just, she was just like, she was, she was getting desperate, like, to the word, her heart was just so in love with me, like, she had to do something. So she's like, you're like, Buster, you need to make a move, okay? <laughs> so, uh, make it crystal clear. Number two, in this courtship, Spend real life time together. Spiritually and socially. Real life time, okay? This isn't just, we're going to the movies. I mean, this is dating. We're going to the movies. We're holding hands. Oh, so cute. We kissed after all. Oh, I so love Real life time. Alright, this is spiritually. Pray together. Uh, Brittany and I read the scriptures together. She's not a theologian or anything, but she's got a lot of things just to share from her heart. We benefit from that. Or just read a book. Grab them. Um, you know, a C.S. Lewis book or some of that, you know, it's helpful to think with somebody along. Helps you understand it. Books like this, get something. Cultivate the spiritual life. Go to church together. Serve together. Still be inclusive. Let people in. You're not too intimate. You're, you have moments, but you're inclusive. You let people in. And then um, social time. Real life social time. Spend time with family. I think that's huge. Get used to being with each other in family environments with parents. Um, family functions. Cook together. That's been an adventure. But Brittany and I cook together. I think, you know, it's just real quality time. It beats all that other stuff of like gazing into each other's eyes and fireworks and making out. And, uh, Some people always look at me like, well, that's like how people do dating. So I'm just clarifying. And then the third step, and finally, in the um, courtship process. Keep possession of your passions 
Own Your Passion, Elizabeth Elliot in her book Pride and Passion and Purity, think Pride and Prejudice, another P and P. Um, Passion and Purity said, keep the hands off and the clothes on. It's very practical. But generally, if the hands are going on, the clothes eventually, maybe not them, but eventually start coming off. Just look, keep your passions in possession. All right, in this course, you're going to have romantic moments. I'm not talking, don't go put your mind too far. I mean, like, you're going to have intimacy. At this stage, it's, it's fine. You're based upon relationship. These things can happen. But keep the passions under control. And I illustrate it like this. Your passions are much like a river, a lot of force. But before marriage, there needs to be a dam holding the river back. Now, the more that the dam holds the river back, the more force that's building up on the dam. And when you get married, guess what happens to the dam? You just unleash that baby. And there's so much built up force. It's just, this is what it should be. It's just a rush of wonderfulness, romance. But, okay, well I brought my dam up, but um, we're a little loose on our passion. So you got a couple crevices. I mean, the dam's still doing its job, but you have a couple leaks. Well, the tension is slowly being eased. And when the marriage time comes, what if you've given so many cracks that when the wall comes up, just a gentle little stream. How anticlimactic. How disappointing. You don't want to ruin it like that. So, I close with, guys, by God's grace, I think this is how God wants us to be. Build a friendship. Move into the courtship. All about the relationship, not the dance and the glance and the romance. and the, look, That'll come. It'll come. But be ye friends. Enter that friendship. Develop that friendship and enter into that courtship. Wow. Let's pray. God, give us grace to hold back. And some of us, um, I don't know, if some are in relationships now, govern them with your spirit and show them what to do. And God, for the rest of us, help us to wait and be patient, to trust your timing, to work while we wait, and to slumber in the sleep of singleness that you may bless us with that person at the right time. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.